Welcome back, Gaming Brainiacs, to the pod. We're talking about uh, Book 2, Chapter 2.2. Um, AE and uh, more are hanging out. They seem to get along better, I would say, than more and the others. Um, AE at least seems to have a little bit more time to speak. Oh, actually, you know, I'm just basing that on the fact that they had a long conversation in this chapter. I didn't see many long conversations, but uh, I don't really know what I'm saying. Anyway, Swim says the mum fishy says, Our George really has contemplating your navel down to a fine art, i.e. to spend too much time thinking about yourself. Since George is spending so much time with A.E., here's a biographical sketch of A.E. We read some of his poems in Book of Verse. And there's a link here to a page, irishphilosophy.com. Mysticism and better business, George William Russell or a.k.a. A.E. Born on the 10th of April, 1867. Russell worked as a draper's assistant by night and a librarian. Uh, in 1897, Russell was being courted for a position in the Theosophical Society in America. Yeats arranged an alternative, a position in Horace Plunkett's Irish Agricultural Organization Society. Russell became the editor of Irish Homestead in 1905. Part of the Celtic revival after that, and in his major philosophical, philosophical work, National Being, he argues passionately for the cultivation of intellectual life in Ireland. Um, he was remembered fondly by those he had helped, befriended and supported, including many writers. Now, we have a bit of a motley crew here of influential writers of the day. A.E. hanging out with Yeats, hanging out with George Moore. Uh, and, you know, Edwards and whoever else. And you see, in that, I see why Hemingway liked this book, I think. I think he probably liked that little motley crew, loose collection of authors and creatives, because that was sort of his scene as well. I feel like this was his scene, um, you know, before... A decade or so before he arrived on the scene, this was the scene that he stepped into. And so the artists he hung out with, well, be a couple of decades maybe, but, um, you know, Fitzgerald and and um, Picasso and, uh, well, Zelda, Fitzgerald. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You've seen Midnight in Paris, I'm sure. He had a he had a scene that he very much was part of, um, or the ringleader of. You could even argue it was a movable feast. Um, and he moved with it. He 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 uh, spurred it on. And I feel like maybe this is a little bit of the precedent for that, or at least the predecessor of that. Um. Let us finish now, chapter two. A.E., A.E., look and admire it. A few minutes afterwards, our brook or river acquired such a picturesqueness that perforce he jumped from his bicycle and unslung his box of pastels, which he wore over his shoulder. Trees, he said, emerging like vapours, and while he discovered the drawing of a brook purling round a miniature aisle between low mossy banks, I lay beside him, forgetful of everything but the faint stirring of the breeze in the willows and the song of a bird in the reeds, a reed warbler no doubt, and while I lay wondering if the bird really were a warbler, A.E. finished his pastel, he leaned 
it against the tree, looked at it and asked me if I liked it. It was a spiritual seeing of the world, and I told him that no one had ever seen nature more beautifully. He put his picture into his portfolio, I put mine into my memory, and we went away on our bicycles through the pretty, neglected country until we came to a grey bridge standing thirty, perhaps fifty feet above the shallow river. The beauty of... The beauty of... It... It's... Slim arches compelled me to dismount, and leaning on the parapet, I started this lamentation. No more stone bridges will be built, and it has come to this, that a crack in one of those arches will supply a zealous county councillor with the pretext for an iron bridge. The pleasures of these modern days is to tear down beautiful yesteryear. No arch will fall within the next ten years, he answered. Admire the bridge without troubling yourself as to what its fate will be when you are gone. A.E.'s optimism is delightful, but while approving it, I could not keep back the argument that a mountain fails to move our sympathies, for it is always with us, whereas a cloud curls and uncurls and disappears. We cling to life because it is forever slipping from us. Don't you think so? It is strange that, although you know more poetry by heart than anyone I have ever met, I've never heard you repeat a verse from Omar Khayyam. You love what is permanent and believe yourself immortal. That is why perhaps Shelley's hymn of Pan is for you the most beautiful lyric in the world. Do say it again. Cellini and fawns and that lovely line ending moist river lawns. One sees it all. Something about temper growing the light of the dying day. Say it all over again. He repeated the verses as we ascended the hill. Hmm. have to look that one up. Uh, he repeated the verses we ascended to the hill. Look at that hound. He came towards us, trotting amiably, gambling now and again for sheer pleasure. The loneliness of the road had awakened the affection that this nature was capable of. He leaned himself against a tree. Sorry, he leaned himself against me. His paws rested upon my shoulders. I fondled the silken ears, and he yawned, perhaps because he wished me to admire his teeth. Beautiful they were, and skilfully designed for their purpose, to seize and to tear. Yet his eyes are gentle. Tell me, is his soul in his eyes or in those fangs? My dear Moore, you have been asked, asking me questions since eight o'clock, eight o'clock this morning, and we all three went on together till we reached a farmhouse in which the hound lived with an old woman. The dog put his long nose into her hand. Ah, <clears throat> uh, the dog put his long nose into her hand, sorry. Uh, and she told us that he had been brought to her very ill. It was distemper, but I brought him through it, and now they'll soon be taking him from me, and you'll be sorry to leave me, won't you, Samson? At the end of September, I said, he'll be taken away to scent out foxes with his brethren in the woods over yonder and to lead them across the green plains, And for he is a swift hound, don't you think he is? But you won't look at him. If he were called Bran or Le Maire, we hopped on our bicycles and rode on till we came to a great river with large sloping banks covered with pleasant turf and shadowed by trees, the famous Boyne, and A.E. pointed out the monument erected in the commemoration of the battle. The beastly English won that battle, if they'd only been beaten. We rode again until we came to a road as straight as an arrow, stretching indefinitely into the country, with hedges on either side. 
A tiresome road and a commonplace, and so commonplace that the suspicion entered my mind that this journey to myth was but a practical joke, and that A.E. would lead me up and down these roads from morning till noon, from noon till evening, and then would burst out laughing in my face, or perhaps by some dodge he would lose me and return to Dublin alone with a fine tale to tell about me. But such a trick would be a mean one, and there is no meanness in A.E. Besides, the object of the journey was a search for divinity, and A.E. does not joke on sacred subjects. We rode on in silence. A woman appeared with candles and matches in her hand. But why should we light candles in broad daylight? There isn't a cloud in the sky. He told me to buy a candle and a box of matches and follow him across the stile, which I did, and down a field until we came to a hole in the ground, and the hole was a ladder. In the hole was a ladder, sorry. He descended into it, and fearing to show the white feather, I stepped down after him. At twenty feet from the surface he went on his hands and knees and began to crawl through a passage narrower as a barrow. I crawled behind him, and after crawling for some yards found myself in a small chamber about ten feet in height and ten in width, a short passage connecting it with a larger chamber, perhaps twenty feet in width and height, and built of great unhewn stones, leaned together, each stone jutting a little in front of the other, till they almost met a large flat stone covering in the vault, and it was here I said that the ancient tribes came to do honour to the great divinities, tribes but not savage tribes, for these stones were placed so that not one has changed its place throughout four thousand years have gone by. Look at this great hollowed stone, maybe, some, maybe many sacrificial rites has been performed in it. He did not answer this remark, and I regretted having made it, for it seemed to betray a belief that the Druids had indulged in blood sacrifices, and to banish the thought from his mind I asked him if he could read the strange designs scribbled upon the walls, the spot, he said, within the first circle in the earth, and the first circle in the sea, the second circle is the heavens, and the third circle is infinite Lear, the god over all the gods, the great fate that surrounds mankind and godkind. Let us sit down, I said, and talk of the mysteries of the Druids, for they were here for certain, and as nothing dies, something remains of them, and of the demigods, and of the gods, the Druids, he answered, refrained from committing their mysteries to writing, for writing is the source of heresies and confusion, and it was not well that the folk should discuss divine things among themselves, for them the art of war and the, care and the chase, and for the Druids meditation and eternal things, but there is no doubt that the Druids were well instructed in the heavens, and the orientation of the stones that surround their temples implies elaborate calculations. At the same hour, every year, the sun shines through certain apertures. But A.E., since nothing dies, and all things are as they have ever been, the gods should appear to us, for we believe in them and not in the gods that men have brought from Asia. Angus is real, more real to me than Christ. Why should he not appear to me, his worshipper? I'm afraid to call upon Mananan or Ondana, but... Do you make appeal? A.E. acquiesced, and he was on the ground soon, his legs tucked under him like a yogi waiting for the vision, and not knowing what else to do, I withdrew to the second chamber and ventured to call upon Angus Dimer's father, that he and his son might show himself to me. There were moments when it seemed that a divine visitation was about to be vouchsafed to me, and I strove to con concentrate all my thoughts upon him that lives in the circle that, that streams about our circle, but the great being within the light that dawned faded into nothingness again. I strove, my thoughts were gathered up 
and all my soul went out to him, and again the darkness lightened. He is near me, in another moment he will be by me, but that moment did not come, and fearing my presence in the tomb might endanger A.E.'s chance of converse with the immortals, I crept along the passage and climbed into the upper air and lay down, disappointed at my failure, thinking that I had tried. A third time I might have seen Angus or Diamond. There are three circles, and it is at the third call that he should appear, but it would be useless to return to the tomb. Angus would be gratif- would not gratify so weak a worshipper with vision, and my hopes were now centred on A.E., who was doubtless in the midst of some great spiritual adventure, which he would tell me presently. The sun stood overhead, and never shall I forget the stillness of that blue day and the beauty of the blue silence with no troublesome lark in it, a very faint blue when I raised my eyes, fading into grey, perhaps with some pink colour behind the distant trees, a sky no wise more remarkable in colour than any piece of faded silk, but beautiful because of the light that it shed over the green undulations, greener than any I had seen before, yet without a harsh tone, softened by a delicate haze of trees emerging like vapours, just as he had painted them, and as I lay in the warm grass on the tumulus the green country unfolded before my eyes, mile after mile, dreaming under the sun, half asleep, half awake, trees breaking into leaf, hedgerows into leaf and flower, long herds winding knee-deep in succulent herbage. It is wonderful to sit on a tumulus and see one's own country under a divine light. An ache came into my heart and a longing for the time when the ancient Irish gathered about the tumulus on which I was lying to celebrate the marriage of earth and sky. On days as beautiful as this day they came to make themselves make thanksgiving for the return of the sun. And as I saw them in my imagination arrive in the, with their druids, two opaque-looking creatures, the least spiritual of men, with nothing in their heads but some ignorant Christian routine, lifted their bicycles over the stile. They're not going to descend into the sacred places, I said. They shall not interrupt his vision, and they shall not. As they approached me, I saw they had candles and matches in their hands, and resolved at any cost to save the tomb from sacrilege. I strove to detain them with speech about the beauty of the summertime and the endless herbage in the, which Keen was fattening. Fattening was the word I used, thinking to interest them. The finest fattening land in all Ireland, one of them said, but we're going below. I should have told them the truth, that the great poet and great painter and great seer was in their own phraseology below, and it might be that the gods would vouchsafe a vision to him. Would they be good enough to wait till he ascended? Mere Christian brutes they were, approvers of the Boer War, but they might have been persuaded to talk with me for ten or fifteen minutes. They might have been persuaded to sit upon the mound if I had told them the truth. I leaned over the opening, listened, hoping their bellies might stick in the narrow passages, but as they seemed to have succeeded in passing through, I returned to the tumulus, hopeless. The gods will not show themselves while Presbyterian ministers are about. A.E. will not stay in the tomb with them, and at every moment I expected to see him rise out of the earth, but it was the ministers who appeared a few minutes afterwards, and blowing out their candles in the blue daylight, they asked me if I had been below. I have been in the temple, I answered. Did you see the fellow below? I am waiting for him, a great writer and painter, I answered indignantly. Is it a history he's brooding down there? One of them asked, laughing. And I lay down on the warm grass, thinking of the pain their coarse remarks must have caused, A.E., who came out of the hill soon after, and it was just as I expected. The vision was about to appear, but the clergyman had interrupted it when they left. The mood had passed. And that's the end of the chapter. Very cool. I liked that. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.